This is John Martinka, and welcome to the Getting the Deal Done podcast. Today's guest is Robbie Bach, a business owner, former corporate executive, and author. And Robbie, welcome. Hey, John. Good to see you again. Let's start with your, your new book. I know when you wrote uh, Xbox Revisited, which came out in 2015, a little bit after that, you told me you were going to work on a novel for your next book and now it's out. So tell us about writing it once you went through, uh, how you how you got there, the help you got and the process. Yeah, so every author is told to show the cover of their book. So this is the Wilkes Insurrection. So that's the um, that's the book I've just finished. It's a uh, techno thriller um, set in contemporary times. And it's the basic stories about a, a couple of anarchists who are trying to tear the country apart. And my main character and a, a number of other characters band together to try to, to protect the country. Um, and, you know, I started writing on this, John, just to uh, explore talent and try to figure out was I capable of doing it. And I started writing character sketches. I didn't even start with a plot or an outline. I started with writing about four or five characters that have been kind of running around in my head. And after about 100 pages, I started to see how they could come together. And then I started working on a plot. And pretty soon I said, you know, I love thrillers. This is going to be a thriller. And from there, the, the book developed and grew. And, um, you know, along the way, I, I had some help. Um, I worked with two editors. One who edited the first version of the book, which was the first version of the book was 550 pages, so way too long. But she got me really focused on the thriller aspect and working on pacing and working on um, uh, voice and what voice I wanted to use when and what perspective I wanted to write from. So I did a bunch of work on my own on the book. And then I had a second editor who really helped me tune, tune to the final production. Um, so, you know, you... When you're doing something like this for the first time, you're going to need some assistance. I just think it's it's not easy. I had somebody help me write my nonfiction book as well. I did all the writing, but they helped me with the editing, and 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 this was the same. Um, so it was, you know, an awesome process. I just love being able to apply my brain in a different way, um, not in a business sense, but really in a in a creative sense. Um, and you know, the outcome's getting great reviews. Uh, we're off to a great start, uh, at the beginning and we'll, we'll see where that takes us. Yeah. What was, uh, what was, what was it like doing something like that that you've never done before coming out of the business world? Well, on the one hand, it's a little scary, right? I mean, you, you, you're sort of putting yourself out there. I mean, when you go to, to all of your friends and say, Hey, I want you to read this fiction novel I wrote and you don't know whether they're going to love it or hate it. Um, you know, that's interesting. And then you finish it and you send it out to reviewers who don't even know you. And then you have to wait and see what they think about the book. That's, uh, you know, a little challenging. I mean, it really tests your sort of fortitude and your confidence and your willingness to sort of, um, uh, hang out and, and, and hope that you've done a, done a good job. And so that, you know, so far that's been, been gratifying. It's worked out well. But, you know, when you're doing the work, there are times where you sort of go, hmm, I wonder if I can get this done. It's not uh, not straightforward. Now, doing a second uh, fiction novel, I think I'd have a lot more confidence at the beginning that I could do it. Um, but this first time around, you know, you it, it, it takes some fortitude to get there. So is there a second one in the works? 
Um, not yet. I will um, uh, start thinking about that in January or February. The, the characters certainly have earned it. The storyline, I think there's logical places to go with the story. Uh, it's really just a function of me deciding, hey, I want to dedicate, you know, you know, with a book, it ends up being my second book would end up being another two, three years of, of work. And I have to, I love the writing. So I just have to decide that I want to knuckle down and, and get going. Um, it'd be still, it'll be easier this time, but my guess is that writing a book is never easy and, uh, there's always challenges. And so, you know, you have to be prepared for that. Okay. It's like, so look, it's not that different from starting a business, right? When you, all, all of what we just discussed, you start a business, you get a little bit of help. You're a little nervous. Maybe the product will work. Maybe it won't. Um, and then ultimately you come to market and you find out, and then you have to decide if you're going to really invest and double down. I mean, that's, you know, but weirdly, the process is actually pretty similar. Okay, let's switch. Uh, your first book was on civic engagement. Yeah. Uh, Xbox Revisited. Uh, talk about that a little bit as you move from Microsoft in the corporate world to civic engagement. Well, when I left Microsoft, uh, I, I left saying, hey, I still want to be engaged in for-profit businesses. So I do a little bit of for-profit board work. Um, but I tried consulting, didn't like that. Um, and, and ultimately started expanding my board work in the nonprofit space. And what I discovered in the nonprofit space is some amazing organizations who do incredible work with dedicated people, but they don't have the same sense consistently of, of strategy the same sense of uh, innovation and creativity uh, sometimes uh, that you might see in an entrepreneurial world or in a startup world in the tech space. And so that second book grew out of a desire to create something that could help those organizations uh, prosper and grow and, and think about strategy in a clear, in a clear way. And, uh, you know, I still use that, uh, you know, the book continues to sell. I still use it all the time. And I talk from the book um, actually quite extensively still. Has that been, uh, would you call it a business or a passion? Um, it's, it's actually both. So I do a lot of, uh, look, well, let's step back. Books mostly end up being passion unless you're, you know, in the Tom Clancy category. Um, it is very hard to make money uh, with a book. That said, Xbox Revisited set me up for uh, the ability to go speak on a national scale and to do that at conferences and with corporations and the like. And that's actually quite a good business. And so I've been uh, successful doing that as a business. And then I do, and you know, I'll probably only do pre-COVID, I was doing eight to 10 of those types of speeches a year. Um, obviously in, in COVID times, I'm doing fewer and most of them are on Zoom. But the thing I have accelerated on is the things I do with schools and nonprofits. And I do that for free. That's, uh, that's purely passion. Um, and I'll probably give in a given year somewhere between 40 and 50 talks to universities and nonprofits on strategy, innovation, and culture. Those are the Great. three topics I talk about. Great. Uh, which are all very important in business as well as nonprofits, maybe even right. more so. Uh, and as, as I told you, the, a lot of the listeners of this podcast series are into, into entrepreneurship and business. So you and your 
a business partner, Pete, bought uh, a company a number of years ago, right. uh, Manini's, and it's a great products. I, I love your products. Uh, but tell us about that, what you've done there, uh, its future, how you've expanded, and start with just a description of what Manini's does. Yeah, so Manini's, uh, when we bought it, was a gluten-free pasta company that also happened to sell a little bit of flour and some bread products that were gluten-free. So think of it as a, a very small gluten-free company. And, and as these things sometimes go, it was even smaller than we thought when we bought it. Um, so the company was actually quite small, but with a wonderful product um, and uh, a flour that could be made into lots of different things. And so the first set of the first couple of years, what we did was really trying to figure out scale, really trying to figure out um, where we could grow sales in the product line we had. We relatively quickly expanded into ravioli, which has grown from zero to being, I don't know, probably 30, 40 percent of our business. Um, we have uh, expanded from there into entree meals, uh, which has now gone again, probably now to 15, maybe almost 20% of our business. So that is lasagna roll-ups, macaroni and cheese, things like that. And you can go into, into the store, take it home and, and heat it up and have a meal. Um, we have also expanded into uh, pizza crust and, and pizza dough balls. Um, and it turns out those sell incredibly well. Um, particularly in the Northwest where we started, we haven't expanded that quite as far nationally, uh, probably as we would like. Um, so the, the product line has grown. It's all gluten-free. Uh, you know, we say great tasting food for a healthy lifestyle. So this is really great tasting gluten-free, free products. Um, you know, our two biggest customers are Whole Foods and, and Amazon Fresh, but we're expanding. We've expanded quite a bit beyond that. And the business is probably what, I don't know, five, six times bigger than it was when we bought it. So, uh, you know, we're starting to make real progress and it's exciting. Um, the last thing I would say is when we bought the, the company, it was a manual operation. Uh, I mean, literally we had our, our team in a refrigerated container, if you can believe this, producing pasta in, you know, 45 degree temperatures because you had to keep it cold to keep it fresh because uh, we sell a lot of our product fresh. And so for, for shelf life, we had to do it that way. Um, we have since over the last uh, two years, um, as we say, gotten out of the refrigerator. We have a full production line now. Uh, we produce our own ravioli, uh, obviously our own pasta. We have a nitrogen tunnel that fla uh, uh, flash freezes the, the product. We have a automated sealer that enables us to guarantee shelf life. And so we've automated uh, the process quite a bit. And, uh, you know, that again has, um, has made the business better and easier, but it's a completely different business now, right? I mean, we have a big, a big set of machinery that we have to run and operate and maintain. And it's very different than what it was when we bought the company. Interesting. So, and that is how you grow is be able to produce more. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, it's, uh, and, you know, like all these things, not without their trials and tribulations, but we're uh, we're making great progress. OK, well, I've only got one more topic unless you have things you would like to to share, but it's tie it to Manini's and to your work in the corporate world. What do you think are the top few things that uh, lessons from the corporate world to owning a small business and helping it grow? Because, as you know, a lot of people I work with, they're buying a company just like you did. And right. Nobody 
says, I want to buy a company and keep it where it is. Right. Right. Well, I think there's a couple of things that they have. There's a lot, lots of things that are in common, but I think there's a few that I would highlight. Uh, the first is in the end of the day, all of these things are about people. And so when you're evaluating a company and you're, you're thinking about, okay, uh, who are the people that work there? Can they continue? Are they the people I need to scale the business? Or am I going to have to have a different team? And if I'm going to have a different team, how am I going to build them? How am I going to train them? How am I going to nurture them into a quality team? And that's true whether you're running Xbox at Microsoft or you're running, you know, the production line at Manini's. Um, it, in the end of the day, it comes down to quality people. And I will tell you that in a particular in a small business, that's difficult because you want to you wanna have great people but your cost base is a, is a real challenge for you. And so you're make, constantly making these trade-offs of, you know, uh, you know, who can I hire? What quality team can I have? How can I train them? How can I help, help them to grow? Um, and so that's to me a, 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 a tension point, but people are in many respects, everything. Um, the second thing I would say that is, I think really consistent um, and this will sound obvious, but it's remarkable the number of times you, you, you see people sort of miss this point. Um, your product has to be demonstrably different. You have to have a way to demonstrate that what you're offering is different than what everybody else is offering. You know, in, a, in our work on Xbox, we decided that we were going to be the first um, great online gaming platform. And Xbox Live changed our trajectory as a business and it changed Microsoft and it changed the gaming industry. And that source of differentiation was super powerful. In the case of Manini's, it's gluten-free and fresh. Oh, and by the way, it tastes great. You know, those things make us really different. And so you have to go into this when you're, when you're evaluating a company or you're thinking about how to grow and expand your company, you really have to understand why your company is different and better. And I know, again, I, I, people are watching this thing, well, duh. But the number of times where you, you suddenly realize, wait, I haven't actually really thought about why I'm different and better than my competitor and how I can demonstrate that. Um, you know, that's a, that's a real challenge. And it's something that you, you have to get right. So people... <laughs> product differentiation. And then the third thing I would highlight um, is strategy. And uh, again, it sounds trite, of course you have a strategy, but um, we started Xbox without a clear strategy. Uh, the strategy was, you know, run hard, run fast, ship by this date, make the explosions look great and it'll all turn out fine. And it did. But I would say that was more accidental tourism than it was planned. And, uh, you know, likewise, when we bought Manini's, there was clear there wasn't a strategy there. Um, and so whether you're a big company or a small company, do you understand the place you're trying to get to, what I call purpose? Do you understand the principles of how you're going to work? And do you understand the priorities you got to pursue to get it? It's not complicated, but you got to have that. You got to write it down. You got to make sure everybody's on the same page. And again, in all the work I've done in big companies, small companies, nonprofits, um, government, um, the number of times where I ask people sort of what's your purpose and they don't have a clear answer would, would actually surprise you. And if I said, what, what are the priorities you're pursuing? The number of times I get a list of 10 things, which means you don't really have any priorities, um, is super high. And so 
it scales no matter what size business you're in. So, you know, people, um, you know, figuring out uh, your uh, differentiation, your source of difference, and making sure you're clear on your strategy. If you get those three things right, um, you got a really good fighting chance of being successful. And if you get them wrong, it's going to be really hard. And it doesn't matter whether you're a, a small startup, uh, an entrepreneurial technology-based startup, or a big company. Okay. Well, you, you know, you mentioned nonprofits a few times. Uh, just share the nonprofits you you work with now. Yeah. So um, I have worked with boys and girls clubs uh, for now more than 20 years. Um, I've been on the board in Bellevue for over 20 years. I've been on the national board uh, of governors for over 15 years. I am deeply in, ingrained in what they do. It's an amazing organization. They serve you know, over 4 million kids. And if you can imagine in the pandemic, what that was, how challenging that was and the work they had to do to make that happen. Um, I also uh, do it for 10 years, was on the board of directors for the uh, U.S. Olympic and Paralympic Committee. And I just termed off of that board. Um, I've been on the advisory board for, for an organization called Year Up here in the Puget Sound for, you know, probably eight or nine years. Um, and that's a group that does, uh, vocational training for kids who are 18 to 23 years old who have talent, but for lots of different reasons, aren't able to sort of con uh, continue on a traditional path. Um, and then I am deeply involved in the Bipartisan Policy Center, which is a DC-based policy group that uh, uh, works with Republicans and Democrats not to do academic research, but to write policy. And things like this recent infrastructure bill, the BPC was, was deeply involved in, in helping shape that and form it and help people understand why it, why it should work and why it's the right way for us to go. So it's, it's a lot of different things, but they're all stuff I'm passionate about. And they're all things I think, I think the thing that they take in common is that they have impact. And I measure my nonprofit work um, based on the impact I think I can have and the impact the organization can have. I think that's a great way to look at it because that, that is the bottom line with nonprofit work is what's actually getting done. Yeah. And it's, um, you know, it's, uh, there's so many good organizations. And when I have to filter where I spend my time, I have to look and say, okay, uh, how many people is this affecting? How important is the issue? Um, can this organization scale to, to serve more? And, um, you know, that's a, that's a hard, a hard thing to gauge, but uh, in the end of the day, um, you got to be able to deliver impact uh, to, to drive change. Well, thank you, Robbie. Uh, sh share with the audience best way to get the Wilkes Insurrection. Yeah, thanks. Thanks, John. Appreciate you having me on. Um, Wilkes Insurrection, you can go. The easiest thing is to go to WilkesInsurrection.com. There's a video trailer, so you get a sense for the, for the book. There are music playlists for all the characters and for the book itself. Um, there's all kinds of background information on the story, as well as links to all the major retailers and the local stores that are carrying it. I'll say, for, since a lot of your uh, uh, listeners and viewers are probably in the Puget Sound area, um, University Books is carrying the book. I'll be there uh, uh, this Sunday from noon to one signing books. Uh, Island Books on Mercer Island has signed and wrapped copies of the book for the holidays. Uh, and obviously Amazon, Barnes and Noble and the, the rest of the, the book crew can, can carry it. But WilkesInsurrection.com is the place to go. And if you're interested in more about what I do, you can go to RobbieBach.com and Xbox Revisited is there. Um, obviously, the Wilkes Insurrection work is there as well as my speaking work. Okay. And just to clarify, 
the this next Sunday is uh, what what is today the well, second it's, fifth, uh, what is December. It's uh, yeah, that's a good question. So let's see. Today's the second, third, fourth. It's the fifth of December. It's twelve to one at University Bookstore uh, over by um, University of Washington. Well, great. Well, thank you so much for being here. Enjoy. Appreciate it, John. Take care.